I'm sure most of you have heard the saying that goes something like this. Those who fail to learn from the mistakes of history are destined to repeat them. That saying is very true, not only of American history and world history, but also of biblical history. When we refuse to learn from mistakes and wrongs of people of the past, then we are destined to repeat their failures. That's one of the reasons why God has given us the history of His dealings with mankind. He wants us to learn from it. That's one of the reasons why we have Hebrew Scripture, or as we commonly refer to it, the Old Testament, to learn valuable lessons about life from those who have gone before us. By way of introduction to our survey of Hebrew Scripture, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start here and then come back here. So you may want to put a little uh, bookmark or something here. After we leave it, we'll come back. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness." Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition or our instruction, our learning, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Twice in these verses, we are told that the history of the people of Israel should serve as an example to us so that we don't fall into sin and experience the horrible consequences that brings. Verse 6 says that, and verse 11 says that. Now some of you might be saying in your heart, I would never do what some of those people did. I would never kill someone like Cain did. Or I would never get drunk like Noah did. Or I would never lie like Abraham did. Or I would never lose my temper like Moses did. Or I would never be unfaithful to the Lord like the children of Israel were. Or I would never commit adultery like David did. If that's what you are thinking, be very careful. If you think you are beyond any kind of sin, then notice the next verse, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think that you couldn't do the kinds of things I mentioned earlier, as well as other things, then you are in great danger because you are deceived. Satan is setting you up for a fall, or you're setting yourself up for a fall. That's one of the reasons why God has given us Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament. 
Hebrew scriptures serve as an example for us to be warned by in our own life. So what is the Old Testament all about? Let's back up there and do an overview to see if we can get a handle on it in a big picture uh, sort of way. All the way back, we begin with the book of Genesis, which is the book of beginnings. The word Genesis means origin, so it's a fitting title since this book tells us about the origin of many different things. In fact, the first 11 chapters of Genesis tell us about four major events that are the key to understanding the rest of the Bible and all of life. I mean that. That is not an overstatement. The first 11 chapters tell us about four major events that are the key to understanding the rest of the Bible and all of life. Those four events are creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. If you don't know about those four events, if you don't understand them, if you're unaware of them, then you will never be able to answer the most fundamental, basic, and important questions about life. For example, where did this universe come from? How did all of this get here? The answer from Scripture? Creation. The flowers, the trees, the lakes, the rivers, the oceans, the animals, the human race were all created by God. And God created all of this in six literal days. The writer of Genesis continually refers to these days with the phrase, and there was evening and there was morning. Each of the six days had just one morning and one evening, something that would hardly apply to long periods of time as some teach. So creation took place in six literal days. But if God created everything, including man, and God is good, then how did we get here? How do we get to this place in history? How did this world get so messed up? The answer, event number two in Genesis 1 through 11, the fall. Genesis 3 tells us about the most horrible event ever to happen. When Adam and Eve sinned against God and plunged humanity into sin. Because of sin, this wonderful world that God created is under a curse According to Genesis 3, Romans 8. That's why there are earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, and other disasters. This world is out of sync because of the curse of sin. And that's our problem also. The reason society and our world are so messed up is because of sin. The reason relationships are so messed up is because of sin. Understanding the fall of humanity into sin answers a whole host of questions. The next major event in the book of Genesis is the flood. That is recorded beginning in chapter 6. Because of the wickedness of the human race, because it grew so great, and because of God's hatred for sin, he judged the entire world by sending a universal flood to destroy every living thing on the face of the earth except for the people and animals that were in the ark. That event helps us understand so many things about present-day geology like fossils, rock strata, etc. The fourth major event in Genesis, in the first, chapter, uh, first 11 chapters of Genesis, is the Tower of Babel. Because mankind refused to obey God's command to scatter throughout the earth, and because mankind unified to create its own false religious system, God confused their speech by establishing different languages, and the result was that people broke into groups according to their language. 
So those four events, creation, fall, flood, and Tower of Babel, are foundational to understanding all of life and the rest of the story of the Bible. The actual story of the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 12, where God chose to begin carrying out his plan through a man named Abram, who later became Abraham. Three chapters later, Genesis 15, God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham, which means that God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham and his descendants, regardless of whether or not Abraham's descendants are faithful to their responsibilities. It's a good thing God made that kind of unconditional covenant because the story of Hebrew Scripture, for those of you who have read it, you know this, the story of Hebrew Scripture is that Abraham's descendants weren't faithful to their end of the bargain. But God was faithful and will yet be faithful. The Abrahamic covenant involved three components, a land, descendants, and blessings. God promised Abraham that he would have many descendants and that his descendants would possess the land of Canaan and that through his descendants, God would bless the nations. And that is exactly what happens throughout the Old Testament in spite of all of Israel's unfaithfulness. God gave Abraham a son named Isaac. Isaac's son Jacob begot 12 sons and they were the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of Jacob's sons was named Joseph, who was sold as a slave into Egypt. But God was in that. God was in that because eventually the whole family of 70 people ended up down in Egypt because of a severe famine. But they stayed in Egypt too long and ended up becoming slaves of the nation. That set, that set the stage for God to show his mighty power by delivering them from the hand of the Egyptian pharaoh. And that's exactly what God does in the book of Exodus. Beloved, understand something. The Exodus of the Old Testament is like the cross in the New Testament. What I mean is both events were the means of deliverance for God's people. For a Jewish person during Old Testament time, if you were to ask them what is the pinnacle of human history, they would point to the Exodus, just like if people ask you as a Christian, what's the pinnacle, the pinnacle event in human history? You'd say the cross, the cross of Christ. So God delivered Israel out of bondage and sent, sent them toward their promised land. But if you know the story, then you know that they didn't go directly there. They were supposed to go directly there, but they didn't. Because of their unbelief and disobedience, they were forced to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years as a judgment from God. What did they do that prompted such a severe judgment from God? Go back to our text in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us what they did. Look at this text again. We just read it basically earlier, but now look at it. Verse 1 <clears throat> says, Moreover, brethren, I, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. Notice the emphasis on the word all in this verse. That term is used five times in the first four verses of this chapter. Paul is trying to emphasize the oneness of, of Israel as a family in their blessings and in their experiences and in their privileges. 
They all had the privilege of being led by the Shekinah cloud, which was the cloud of God's presence. They all had the, the privilege of experiencing that tremendous miracle of walking through the sea when it was parted. But there was more. They had, they had more privileges. Verse 2 says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all, verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 2 says they were baptized into Moses. What does that mean? Well, the basic idea of baptism is identification. All Israel had the privilege of being identified with the Lord's great leader, Moses. And indeed, Moses was a great leader. All of Israel had the tremendous privilege of being identified with him as the Lord's appointed leader over them. But that's still not all. Verse 3 says, all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Israel not only had the privilege of having the Shekinah presence of God with them, but they also had the spiritual sustenance of the pre-incarnate Christ on their journey. What tremendous privileges Israel enjoyed together as a community and as a family, as a nation. But verse 5 drops like a bomb. Because verse 5 says, But with most of them God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. The phrase, most of them, here in this verse, is an understatement if there ever was one. Of all the Israelites who left Egypt, only two were allowed to enter the Promised Land. Joshua and Caleb. Only two. Most biblical historians estimate approximately two and a half million left Egypt in the Exodus. Out of them, two were allowed to enter the promised land. What was it that caused God to be so displeased with his people? The answer to that is in verses 6 through 10, where Paul lists five major sins of Israel that caused God to be displeased with them. Sin number one, lusting after evil things. Verse 6 says, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Israel lusted after evil things. They craved whatever God had forbidden. They longed for whatever was not good for them. That is the general overarching category, and the next four sins are the specifics. Sin number two, idolatry. Verse seven, and do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now maybe you're thinking, well, that's not really a problem today. I I don't worship idols of stone or wood. That's probably true. But idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. Idolatry can take the form of worshiping money, people, popularity, things, materialism, sports, success, etc. These are the idols of the 21st century. Anything that you and I would love more than God is an idol, including self which might be the biggest idol in the 21st century. But there's another form of idolatry that I see on a regular basis among Christians. And that is, please hear this, that is the way so many Christians redefine God to fit into the mold of their own wishes, preferences, and desires. Through the years, I have talked with many people about sin in their lives, And a common response I hear is this. Well, 
God loves me and he understands. Or else they, they'll say, I have prayed about this and I have peace from God over this issue. I, I still am stunned on a regular basis at how many people redefine God so they can feel comfortable with their sin. I know of people who say they have prayed and received peace from God about pursuing an unbiblical divorce, living in fornication, having homosexual relationships, hating other Christians, etc. Beloved, when people think they can have peace with God while engaging in sin that God clearly prohibits and condemns in Scripture, then those people are not seeing the true God. They're not viewing the true God. They have made God into their own specifications. And that is idolatry. Idolatry is running rampant today. If you hold to a view of God that is different than the way the Bible presents him, then that is idolatry. I remember on one occasion receiving a letter from a man. We were corresponding. He, he wasn't right here, so we, we couldn't meet personally. But we were corresponding through a series of circumstances. I was, uh, the Lord had brought me into his life. This man was living in sin against God's standards in a certain area of life. And here's how he basically ended our, our correspondence and tried to excuse his sin. He said this, We worship the same God, but we just see him differently. You see, he viewed God as a God who thinks it's okay to persist in sin if that is more convenient than obedience, which was the case in his situation. So he was not only involved in something that God clearly forbids, but he went another a, a step further by committing idolatry to try to justify his sin. Beloved, please understand that you don't need to pray about doing things that God has clearly said are wrong. There are some things you don't really have to pray about. For example, if I were to tell you that I am praying about whether or not I should steal some money, what would your response be? You would say, that's ridiculous. You don't need to pray about that. You don't even need to pray about things like that. When God speaks clearly on a subject, don't excuse your sin by saying you've prayed about it. That's idolatry. And here we are told we should learn from Israel's example not to commit idolatry. Sin number three, sexual immorality. Verse 8, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. The Greek word used here in this verse is the broadest general term for sexual sin. It can refer to engaging in sex before marriage. It can refer to adultery. It can refer to pornography. It refers to any sexual activity God forbids. And God considers sexual immorality among his people so treacherous that as a result, we're told here, he actually killed 23,000 Israelites. 23,000. This is a message that constantly needs to be reaffirmed in the church today. God sees sexual immorality as a serious grievance, a serious offense. 
Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Israel was guilty of sexual immorality. Sin number four, testing or trying Christ. Verse 9 says, Nor let us, depending on your translation now, tempt or test or try Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. The incident this verse is referring to is found in Numbers chapter 21. So instead of me just telling you about it, let's go back to Numbers, the fifth book of of Hebrew Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 21. We'll go back to 1 Corinthians 10, so you may want to hold your finger there or put a bookmark there. Numbers 21, verse 4. Says then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very different translations here. The best, I think, translation of this Hebrew word is impatient. The people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. Talking about the manna. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among them, among the people. And they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. The attitude of the children of Israel was one of testing the Lord's patience. Trying the Lord's patience. It's possible for us to do this today. Christians can do this. How? Well, the attitude that is so prevalent in Christianity today is, well, this is the age of grace. God is a God of love. Besides, we can't lose our salvation, so why take the Christian life so seriously? That type of attitude tries the patience of our Lord. The children of Israel learned the hard way when God sent fiery serpents among them to judge them. They were testing God, trying God. Now back to our text in 1 Corinthians 10. We've seen four of the major sins in Israel that caused God to not be pleased with them. And these are serious offenses. Lust, idolatry, sexual immorality, and trying God. But I'm afraid we fail to see the next sin is just as serious. Sin number five in this list, murmuring. Notice verse 10. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Murmuring is complaining or grumbling about the way God is doing things. And in some cases the way God is doing things with and through his leaders. That was the case often with Israel. Or you could just keep it general. Murmuring is complaining or grumbling about the way God is doing things. Beloved, God does not take this lightly among us. Some of us would never think of lusting after evil things or committing idolatry or committing sexual immorality or trying Christ, but we murmur and complain when murmuring and complaining and griping is just as wrong as lust, idolatry, adultery, and trying Christ. This was a constant problem with the children of Israel. Go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 16, the second book 
in Hebrew Scripture, Exodus 16. We'll look at just a few quick examples. Verse 1, And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Zin is the Hebrew there, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Here began this problem of their complaining and their griping. We see God's response. Look at chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Zin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted, and the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. We see this going on again over in Numbers 14. Skip the book of Leviticus and look at Numbers chapter 14. Verse 1, So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. This was a constant problem with the children of Israel. And finally, God had had enough. Verse 26, skip down to verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints with the children, which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun, you will by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in, but your little ones whom you said would be victims I will bring in and they will know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land 40 days for each day you shall bear your guilt one year namely 40 years and you shall know my rejection I the Lord have spoken this I will surely do this do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness they shall be consumed and there they shall die That's why the children of Israel wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. Over in chapter 16, we won't look at it, but God killed 14,700 Israelites for murmuring and complaining and griping. It's pretty significant. 
So after the 40 years of wandering, they finally began their conquest of the land and the establishing of their nation. Their first king was Saul. He reigned for 40 years, but God took the kingdom from him because he continually compromised and practiced partial obedience, which is really disobedience. Look at 1 Samuel 15, past Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. This chapter records the last straw of Saul's disobedience in Samuel's confrontation of Saul. Verse 22, so Samuel said, he's speaking to Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So Saul was replaced by David, who reigned for 40 years, and then David was replaced by his son Solomon, who also reigned for 40 years. During this time, there was the writing of the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Solomon's reign especially was characterized by peace and prosperity and tranquility. But then the kingdom was tragically divided in 931 B.C. The northern ten tribes split off from the two southern tribes and formed their own kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom had 19 kings throughout its history. And catch this, all 19 were wicked. All 19. And so were the people. But God, in his loving kindness, warned them and called them to repentance through his prophets Amos and Hosea. But the people wouldn't listen. So God sent his judgment in approximately 722, 721 B.C. in the form of the Assyrian kingdom, which took the people away into captivity. The southern kingdom continued another 130 years with a mixture of wicked and good kings, but eventually their kings were continually wicked and the people followed suit. Once again, God in his loving kindness warned them and called them to repentance through his prophets. This time it was Isaiah, Micah, Joel, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah. But the people of the southern kingdom wouldn't listen. So in 586 B.C., God sent his judgment in the form of the Babylonian kingdom, which took the people into 70 years captivity, during which time God still spoke to his people through the prophet Daniel and the prophet Ezekiel. After 70 years of captivity, the people were released to go back to their beloved homeland, but they faced the overwhelming task of rebuilding their nation and rebuilding their lives. It was during this time that the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther took place. It was also during this time that God raised up Haggai and Zechariah to encourage the people and exhort the people and prophesy to the people. And some exciting things happened during this period. Nehemiah rallied the people to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem in spite of all the opposition. And look what happened in Nehemiah chapter 8. Keep turning to the right past First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah chapter 8. 
Verse 1 tells us, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand stood a bunch of people whose names I can't pronounce. So we'll skip those and go to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with all their faces to the ground. Verse 8 says, So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions, and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Here the people experienced spiritual revival when they under, understood the Word of God. But unfortunately, they didn't stay on track spiritually. After a while, the people and the priests became spiritually apathetic and lethargic. They went through the motions mechanically, but their heart wasn't really in it. They had left their love, their first love, for the Lord God of Israel. They allowed their zeal to wane. So, in response, God raised up the prophet Malachi to rebuke the people, to call the people to repentance, call them back. And that's how the Old Testament ends in 400 B.C. With the prophet Malachi calling to God's people, turn back, revive your hearts, stir your passion for the Lord God of Israel. So what can we take with us from this message by way of practical application. There, there, there could be many things, but I think the best answer is, what, is in what I just said a moment ago about how the Old Testament ends. It ends with an indictment against the people of God because they had become spiritually apathetic. They had become spiritually lethargic. Like the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, they had left their first love. They were simply going through the motions mechanically, whatever those were, offering their sacrifices, observing the feast days, observing the holy days. They were just going through it mechanically without any real zeal or any enthusiasm, any excitement or any passion. And my guess is that there are some like that here. You're just going through the motions of the Christian life. 
but there's no zeal. You still attend church. I mean, after all, you're here now. So you go through the motions. You attend church. Maybe you do some other things, whatever they, whatever they are. But, but there's no zeal, no enthusiasm, no vibrant love, no passion for Christ. You're still into Christian activity, but you're not passionate about your relationship with Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul said this, But I'm afraid. I'm afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Maybe, maybe that has happened to some of you. You've been led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. If that describes you, then you need to turn back to the Lord, just like Malachi called on the people of Israel to do in his day. Repent. Open your heart again to the Lord. He will cleanse. He will revive you. As I said earlier, the Old Testament is all about the Lord's faithfulness in spite of the unfaithfulness of his people. So if you're in that category, as a child of God now I'm talking about, I'm not talking about as an unbeliever, I'm talking about as a, as a believer, a child of God. If you've been unfaithful to him, let me tell you something. He's still there. Re renew your devotion to him. As we bow together in closing prayer. Please bow with me. Father, it's a powerful story to consider all of Hebrew Scripture in, in sort of one fell swoop, seeing your plan as it unfolds, seeing your promises to Abraham and to your people, seeing the unfaithfulness of your people, and certainly we have, we have no room to cluck our tongues at the people of Israel. But as we see their unfaithfulness and the devastating consequences they experience by being taken into captivity by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, but then seeing your immense mercy and your unfathomable grace to release them from captivity, to allow them to return to their beloved homeland, to rebuild their nation, rebuild their, their city, their beloved city of Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, rebuild their lives. And then to see this, this revival take place in Nehemiah chapter 8 when they when they heard your word and they, they opened their hearts to it and they responded to it. And it was such a day of joy, even though the people at first were grieved when they realized what they had done in violation of your word. It revived them, encouraged them, infused them with joy. And yet as we continue through the story, we see how that waned. We see how they lapsed into a spiritually lethargic routine, going through the motions, offering the sacrifices, going to the temple. It's the, it's the same thing that can happen to us so easily. We just, we just go to church because that's the thing we do. We go Sunday morning, Sunday night, go to other things. But there's no zeal, there's no excitement, there's no passion for your son Jesus Christ. Oh, how easy it is for us to lapse into that. 
as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11.3, our, our minds are led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So as we consider this, this sweeping overview of Hebrew Scripture and as we see how it ends with Malachi, your faithful prophet, calling your people back, calling your people to a renewed devotion, may it be a challenge to our own hearts. May we, if we have lapsed at all, slipped at all, be challenged by that. Be aware of it, on guard for it. And may we remember that if we have been, even though we have been unfaithful, you're still there. And you call us to renew our devotion and renew our passion. Father, I pray we would do that, each and every one of us in our own hearts, this very moment. As we close, in Jesus' name, amen.